they're amazing. So, so during this time of year, we, we see a lot of these around, right? Nice Christmas ornament. And it's, it's round like the world, but I don't need notes, Darbs. You know I just make up stuff up here. No, I'm just kidding. I have notes up here. Thank you. Um, so there's a lot of nice round um, ornaments around at this time of year. But really, if we were going to pick something to describe our world, it wouldn't look so much like this. It'd probably look more like this. Does this ever happen to you where you step on an ornament? It's a, it's a wonderful feeling. Thankfully, I didn't step on this one. I did break it, though. And if we're honest, our world really looks a lot more like this than it does this. Right? Our world is full of blame and shame and lies and fear. And remember, we talked about that our first week when we started our series called The Greatest Story, how the Christmas story changes everything about your story. And the story really began where we knew God, we had a close, intimate relationship with God, and we said, you know what? God, it'd be nice if you just kind of went away and let us do what we want. And we tried to live on our own, and the result was a world full of fear and shame and lies and blame. And you can look around and see this everywhere, right? You can see this in the world. Just get on Twitter, comment on somebody, and just watch the people, you know, start to unload on you. Or just watch the news, or just walk out your front door, or try to have a relationship. You know, the world is just full of chaos. And even if the world wasn't, we can look at ourselves and we can look at the people that we know and what are their lives full of blame and shame and lies and fear. And so over the last few weeks, starting with that, we've been following this story through the Old Testament that ultimately leads us to Jesus and the Christmas story. It's all part of this one big story. Now remember in the beginning when we messed everything up and we said, God, we don't need you, we've got it. And then we realized what a mess our world was in. God made a promise right there at the beginning. He says, I'm going to send someone who's going to be a rescuer. I'm going to send someone to set things right. And then he promised, I'm going to create a special people who are going to be a platform for my special person who's going to come and set everything right. And this special people were the the Jewish people, were Israel. And this special person, the Jewish people called him Messiah, which means rescuer. So 1,800 years ago, before Jesus... That would be 3,800 years from us. But 1,800 years before Jesus, God started this special people, Israel, with a man named Abraham. And last week, Matt shared that message with us about Abraham. And his descendants became the people who were to be the platform for God's special person who was going to heal the world of shame and fear and lies and blame. And if you look at the Old Testament... The Bible is broken into two parts, Old Testament and New Testament. If you look at the Old Testament, it's all these stories about how God created the special people to be a platform for Jesus, how he protected them, how he used them, and how he kept telling them, hey, I'm going to send this special person, and he's going to come into your midst, he's going to come out of you, and he's going to bring healing to the whole world. Now, God would often send special messengers to his special people who were a platform for his special person. Did you follow that? There was a lot of specials in there, right? So God would send special messengers to his special people. That's the Jewish people. They're the platform for a special person who's the rescuer, Jesus. And so these special, special messengers who would come to his special people were called prophets. And you've probably heard the term prophet. And we usually think of prophets predicting the future. But most of the time in the Old Testament, they came and they actually dealt with everyday issues. But sometimes they would say things about the future. Every prophet in the Old Testament had the same message. Now they had different words in how they said it, but really all their messages 
all the books in the Old Testament that are written by prophets all say pretty much the same thing. Hey, Israel, remember you're my special people. You're going to be my special platform to announce the Messiah to the world. And sometimes they forgot and they started living or acting in such a way where they forgot that they were supposed to be the special platform. And so he would send these messengers to them and say, hey, remember, you're going to be a platform for Jesus who is coming. Just a reminder, you need to remember who you are and why you exist. And you see them all the time throughout the Old Testament where they'll be like, hey, that country over there has a king. We really want a king. And Jesus would send a messenger, in that case Samuel, and he'd say, remember, you're the special people who are going to be a platform for the special person coming. And they're like, we really want a king. And sometimes they would say, we really want to worship this God over here. And he'd send a messenger and he'd say, no, you can't worship that God over here because I'm coming into your midst as a special person, Jesus, to heal the world. And so that was the first message every prophet had. But the second message was this. I haven't forgotten, I'm still sending my special person, the Messiah, the rescuer, Jesus. He's still coming. Hold on. And so what you see is most of their message was, remember who you are, but occasionally they'd have a little bit of message about this special person who was coming, who was going to bring healing to the world, who was going to rescue us from shame and fear and blame and lies. And so sometimes you had uh, different passages where he was reminding them of who they are, and then he'd say something like, the Messiah is going to be born in a small town called Bethlehem. The Messiah is going to be from the tribe of Benjamin. The Messiah is going to be related to the line of David. And he started giving these details about what this special person was going to be like. So, have you followed all that? I know that's a big Bible information dump right there. So 700 years before Jesus, there was a prophet, one of these special messengers to God's special people, Israel, and his name was Isaiah. So Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus, and he actually got a lot of information about the Messiah, this rescuer who was coming, God's special person who was going to bring healing to the world. But a lot of people were confused about what Isaiah was saying because Isaiah seemed to be saying two different things, and we're going to look at that. First of all, in Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7, this is what he says. A child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion of his will be vast. Its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over David's kingdom to establish and sustain it. He will sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. This is pretty powerful. And so people read this and they're like, we can't wait till this guy gets here. This sounds awesome. He predicted that the Messiah was going to be a great, powerful conqueror and rescuer. This guy was going to be a guy in charge. Everybody was going to bow down and follow him. He was going to be an authority figure. But then Isaiah also wrote this in Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time tonight. It says in Isaiah 53, Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form. He didn't have any majesty that we should look at him. He had no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was like. He was like someone who people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him at all. 
Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, he carried our pain. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. He was pierced because of our rebellion, he was crushed because of our iniquities, punished for our peace was on him, punishment for our peace was put on him. We are healed by his wounds. We have all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who even thought of his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck down because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. He was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had spoken, uh, had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. And when you make him and when you make him a guilt offering, we will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted himself to death. He was counted among the rebels, and he bore the sin of many, and interceded for the rebels. And so, you have this contrast where Isaiah's like, hey, this special person is coming, he's going to be this powerful ruler, he's going to be this conqueror, he's going to be this amazing person, and then we see here in 53, where he's like, he's going to be defeated, he's going to die, he's going to be punished, he's going to be crushed, he's going to be destroyed, his life's going to be full of sorrow, he's going to suffer and be defeated. And this paradox between these two extremes confounded the religious leaders. And so 700 years before Jesus, all the way up to the time Jesus came, you had religious people debating about this. And here's what they decided on. They decided something that a lot of us do. They said, you know what we'll do? We'll ignore the part we don't like, his suffering, and we'll focus on the part that we love, him conquering. And so that's what they did. They said, Isaiah 53, that must be talking about something else. Let's focus on the part we like. We like him conquering people. That sounds good to us. And so they focused on that. And that's why when you see Jesus come, the religious leaders are like, you can't be the Messiah. You're not like what we expect. We expect you to be conquering Rome. And Jesus is like, oh, you're not reading the scriptures right. Um, so Jesus coming as a suffering savior may not have been the most pleasant thing to think about for them. They wanted a hero, a conqueror, but it's really the most beautiful part of the greatest story, the Christmas story. And here's why. I just want to pull out a couple things from Isaiah 53. First of all, you'll notice that it says that there was nothing attractive about him in verse 2. He grew up like a young plant, like a root pulled out of the ground. It's like a weed, essentially. He's like, you look at him and you're like, oh, that person's a weed. I mean, they're just, there's nothing about them that makes me think, oh, they've got potential. He didn't have an impressive form. He had no majesty that you would turn and look at him. Have you ever seen, um, the, the, I have a friend, and he is always dressed so cool. Like, he wears the coolest boots, the coolest jacket. He always has the coolest haircut. Every time I see him, I'm like, why is he so cool? Like, I, if I had 1% of his cool, I, everybody around would be like, you're the coolest person around. I mean, this guy is just that cool. He always has the coolest looking stuff. And I'm always like, where do you get that coat? Where do you get those shoes? You know, like, can I model this uh, look at all? It's saying here, Jesus didn't have any of that. He was despised and rejected. He had no appearance that anyone should desire him. I was reading an interesting psychological article, and it said 
attractive people are more likely to be believed than ordinary looking or ugly people. If you're attractive, people are more likely to believe you. Even if they know you're lying, they're more likely to believe you if you're attractive. And they said uh, they did all these experiments with uh, all these people and all these test cases. And they were like, people will believe an attractive person even if they know they are lying to them because they're attractive. And they're like, what is wrong with us as humans? And they talked about how this plays into politics and how it plays into business and different things. We, we trust attractive people more. But Jesus didn't come and he could have chosen any form he wanted. He didn't choose to be the most handsome person. He chose to be ordinary and not impressive and no one that turned ahead. Um, I, in this same study, they also talked about how people with beards are distrusted because it's like you're, you're hiding something. And uh, so if you have a beard, people immediately think, what's he trying to hide if he's got a beard? You know what's really funny about that is, in my notes I wrote, people with bears are hiding something. So also if you have a bear, I would imagine that you probably are hiding something if you have a bear chained up in your front yard. But um, what I meant by that is, people with beards are not trusted. So Jesus had a beard, we know, because it was pulled out when he was crucified as part of his torture. Um, so he had a beard. He wasn't attractive. He really had nothing going for him that people were like, I should listen to this guy. He's really good looking. He's clean shaven. He looks trustworthy. But what I love about this is God isn't trying to sell us something. Jesus didn't come down and he put on his slickest suit and he said, let me tell you about salvation, you know, and he's like, right now, for 1995, salvation can be yours. I mean, God's not trying to sell us anything. He's not like, if you order now, you can get eternal life, but call in the next 15 minutes and I'll throw in a mansion in heaven and a free Bible. That's not what he was doing. He, he's not trying to sell you on who he is. He simply came and he lived and loved in such a way that hopefully it compels us to follow him. He didn't come down and say, man, I'm going to do all these flashy tricks and try to get you to follow me. He wants us to choose. He wants us to be compelled by the way that he treated people and what he said and how he lived. And we need to remember this too. We're not selling people on Jesus. I think sometimes when we talk to other people about Jesus, we're like, it's really great. You need to start following Jesus. You can spend eternity with him. You can have a life purpose. You can have meaning. And all those things are true. But that's not how Jesus talked about himself. He wasn't trying to sell people on Jesus. We build relationships with people so that they can experience that Christianity is true. We're not selling them on like, Christianity is fun and all your bills and problems will go away. I have a friend, uh, his name is Dustin, he's not a believer, and I was talking to him this week, and he, he said, hey Alex, help me find a good religion that makes me feel good and doesn't require anything of me. I'm like, first of all, I don't know if that religion exists, um, and so he, that's what I told him, I was like, I, I don't know if there's a religion like that, Dustin. And uh, he said, so tell me, what do you like about Christianity? Why do you pick that one? And I said, well, honestly, I didn't pick it because I like it. There's actually some things about Christianity that I don't like, but I think it's true. I'm a follower of Jesus because I think the way that he lived and loved is the true way to live. I think that what he said about himself is true. And so I'm not a follower because I'm like, man, Christianity seems real dope. I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm following Jesus because I think it's true. And I either have to say I'm going to deny reality and do something else or I'm going to follow what seems to fit 
um, to conform to reality the most, even if there's parts I don't like. You know, Jesus said in Luke 9.23, he said to everyone there, he was talking to a crowd, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. If you were going to sell, your, sell someone on Christianity, this is not the way to do it. So we think of the cross as a fuzzy religious symbol now, but in Jesus' day, he hadn't died yet when he said this. So the cross to them was an executioner symbol. It would be like saying this, if anyone wants to follow Jesus, let him deny their hopes and dreams, let them deny their desires, let them deny their passions and their needs in life, and take up their electric chair and follow me because they're not going to live for themselves anymore, they're going to live for me. That's not a real good sales pitch. You know, like, I'd like to come along to Jesus and be like, hey, this is not how you get people on board. But he's just being honest. He says, if you want to live the way that I lived and love people the way that I lived, it's going to mean dying to yourself and living for other people. He's like, why would we even do this, Alex? This sounds horrible. I think it's the only true way to live. That's why. I think it's the way of life. I think it is... The only way that makes sense to live life. But not only is Jesus not trying to sell us something, he's just being honest and straightforward. He's right there just telling us the truth. Look at verse 3. He is a man of sorrows. He is despised and rejected. He is a man of suffering. He knows what it's like to be sick and ill and to be crushed and to be killed. Being a man of sorrows means that Jesus never ignores our suffering because he himself has suffered. He knows what it is like to suffer. He can uniquely meet us in our pain because he has felt pain. And it's not just like, he's God, he knows everything, so he knows what it's like to hurt. No, he literally came to earth and felt it. It's not just that he has this um, you know, existential knowledge of pain. He's actively felt pain. He's actively died. He experienced what it's like to be deeply hurt. Jesus was betrayed by some of his closest friends. He was rejected at every turn by people who should have, by all intents and purposes, believed him. He was falsely accused for crimes he didn't commit. He was rejected by his own family who said, Oh, you're not the Messiah. What are you doing? He was ridiculed. He was murdered. He was tortured. You could go down the list. Anything you've experienced, Jesus has experienced it. He knows what it's like to suffer. And so when you come to Jesus and you say, I am hurting here, he says, I feel you. He literally has felt what you felt. And he doesn't say, you know what? It must really be horrible being a human. He says, I've been there and I know exactly what you feel. And he comes alongside us. He's cried and wept just like we cry and weep. It says in Hebrews 4.15, Jesus understands our weaknesses for he faced all the same testings that we do. He knows exactly what it's like to lose, to suffer grief, to suffer loss, to suffer pain and agony, to be rejected and denied, to have hopes denied, and to have people turn against you. And so Jesus being a man of sorrows means that he is an approachable God, not a God who sits far off, high up somewhere and says, you know what? Must be rough down there. You know, like he's watching our suffering on TV. He knows exactly what it feels like to hurt. And then in verses 4 and 5, it talks about how he bore our sickness. He bore our sins. He bore our rebellion so that he could rescue the rebels. And he went to the cross and died. It says he was pierced 
because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our wrongdoings. He was punished so that we could know peace. See, the Christmas story changes everything about our story because the author of the story entered into the story and he rewrote the story with ink from his own blood. He was like, the story's been ruined. And so the author came into the story and he changed the plot. He redeemed the plot with ink from his own blood. The good news is that we could never be good enough to reach Jesus, so Jesus came to us. He died. He took the worst part about us so he could freely give us the best part about him so that we could know him forever. That's the Christmas story. Jesus drank death to defeat death so that we might have life. He died so that we could bring an end to fear and shame and blame and lies lies and live in his kingdom. And then if you look down here at verse 6, it talks about how we all have gone astray like sheep. We have all turned our own way, and the Lord has punished him for our wrongdoing. You know, I don't like to be told what to do. Anybody else out here like this? Somebody tells me, like, the best way to get over there is to take this road. I'm like, I bet there's another road. I bet I can get there a different way. And if uh, people say, don't touch something, go ahead to the next slide there, Austin. Yeah, I, that's my hand. You can see it's the same ring right here. If somebody says, please do not touch, I'm like, I'm going to touch that. Like, why can't I touch that? It's an old piece of wood. Who cares if I touch it? That's an Eastern State Penitentiary. And uh, if you go there, they have this uh, countertop there where the guards used to sit or something. And they're like, please don't touch. And I'm like, well, you're asking me to touch. I never would have touched it if you didn't put a sign on it. Once you put a sign on it, I have to touch it. And I'm such a jerk that I even took a picture of me touching it and posted it on social media. And I was like, I'm touching this. I don't like to be told what to do. I, I don't like people telling me which way I should go. I mean, it's horrible, um, you know, before GPS, if I had to ask someone for directions, I'm like, I'll figure it out. I'm independent. I don't need other people. I don't need help. I can do it on my own. But Jesus invites us to live his way, not our way. See, each of us want to live our way. We're like, I can figure out this life. I can do it. I'm going to do it my way. And that's what really started this whole thing of blame and fear and shame and lies. We were trying to live on earth our way instead of God's way. We said, we don't need you, God. We'll do it our way. And Jesus came and said, now I'm creating a new way. A way for you to follow my way rather than your way. You know, I started thinking about if everyone did things their way... Would the world be better or worse? Worse. I think it'd be worse. We'd all be like, I'm out for mine and my own. All I care about is my own people and my needs, and I don't care about anybody else. You know, in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can know God the Father except through me. See, there's two ways to live life. Your way or Jesus' way. And Jesus came into the world so that we could know his way, we could know him, and know the Father. See, I think that if everyone lived and loved like Jesus, this community would be better. Our workplaces would be better. Our homes would be better. Our city would be better. Our nation would be better. Our world would be better. But I think if everyone keeps living their way, rather than Jesus' way, we're going to have wars. We're going to have conflicts. We're going to have poverty. We're going to have um, drug addictions. We're going to keep having chaos and agony and pain. 
Do you really think you can live your life better than Jesus prescribes? I don't know. I mean, sometimes I think people think that. They think, man, I got this. I don't know. When I try to choose my own way through life, I usually choose selfishly, and selfish things always lead to destruction. It's always pain and trouble and chaos. And I think the best way through life is to live like Jesus lived and to love people like Jesus loved them, to become a follower of the way of Jesus. And then the last thing I want to look at here in this passage is we could really go through and pull out so much in this, but nobody wants to sit around here for hours and hours. So verses 7 through 12, he really begins to um, lay out some prophecies about this rescuer, this Messiah, this Jesus who was coming. In Isaiah 53, 7, we see that Jesus would not answer his accusers. And in Matthew 27, 12 through 14, they're bringing all these accusations against Jesus. And they're like, do you have nothing to say? And he was silent. They're like, you've got to give a defense for your, yourself. And he was just quiet. In Isaiah 53, 9, it says that he would be buried with the rich. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And in Matthew 27, 57 to 60, this rich follower of Jesus said, put him in my tomb. He doesn't have a tomb after they crucified him. And so he was buried in a rich man's tomb. And then in Isaiah 53, 9, it says that he would be innocent, that he'd be accused, but he would be innocent. And in John 18, 38, we know that the Roman authorities said, I find nothing wrong with this man. This man has done nothing wrong. There's no reason we should kill him. And the religious leader said, this is not our rescuer. This is not who we want. Kill him. Crucify him. And in Isaiah 53, 10, it says that he would be resurrected and live forever. It talks about how um, that he would see light again and he would be raised and he would live forever. And we know in Mark 16, 6 and many other places, the resurrection of Jesus is accounted for and told over and over again that on the third day, they went to the tomb and he wasn't there. And the, the uh, disciples, the followers of Jesus, were just as surprised as the Romans and the religious leaders. They're like, what is going on? But if Jesus came back from the dead, if that's real, everything he said about this is the way to live, this is the way to love, everything he said is real. And all these prophecies were given 700 years before Jesus shows up. And then Jesus shows up and begins to fulfill these one after another. And so, in conclusion, what do we take away from this? What do we bring out into our lives this week? First of all, I think we need to ask the question, which way are you going? Your way or the way of Jesus? Which way are you living? I know which way I think is better for the world and better for you, and that's to follow the way of Jesus. Jesus, as he walked around on the earth, began to invite people, follow me. Come and be my disciple. Become a student of the way that I live and love. And Jesus has promised now that if anyone comes to him and says, Jesus, I need you to rescue me. He's promised to give us his power, his Holy Spirit, to enable us to live and love like he did. To follow his way. And then second of all, I think we should take Jesus our sorrows. Because he's a God who knows our sorrows and he understands our pain and he feels what it feels to hurt. And so we can go to him and we can say, Jesus, I know what you, you know what it feels like to feel this grief, to feel this pain, to feel this physical pain, this emotional pain, this spiritual pain. And finally, how are we talking about Jesus with people? Are we talking like a salesman? And so often I fall back into this where I'm like, 
You should become a follower of Jesus. It's amazing. You know, look at all these benefits, you know, and we'll throw in this set of knives. But that's not how Jesus talked about himself. That's not how Jesus invited uh, people to him. But he built relationships with people and they saw how valid the way that he lived and what he taught was. And through those relationships, they realized this thing's real. And they had to make a decision not based on the benefits of what they were getting. They had to make a decision based on, do I want to come to terms with the reality of who he is and what he's saying? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that 700 years before you walked on this planet, Isaiah was getting these details about what you would be like and what you were here to do. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful that you came to rescue us. And you didn't come to rescue us from Roman imperial uh, oppressors. But you came to rescue us from ourselves. From the battle that's waging inside of all of us. This, this destructive tendency to choose what's selfish and what's right for us but wrong for everybody else. Lord, we're so thankful that you came to rescue us out of blame and shame and fear and lies. And bring us into your presence and allow us to have a relationship with you and God the Father to know you. And Lord, we get the great privilege to live like you lived and to love like you loved. And God, we're unworthy, but that's the whole good news that you shared. We don't have to earn it. We couldn't be good enough. And so you freely gave it to all who would believe. Lord Jesus, I pray that if there's anyone here who's going their way rather than your way, I pray that you would just convince them, you would compel them about the truth of your way. And Lord, for those of us who are feeling sorrows and have heavy hearts, Lord, I pray that we will come to you and we will lay them down and be wrapped in your arms and to be reminded that you felt our pain. And Lord, I pray that you bring comfort. And Lord, finally, I pray that as we talk to other people about Jesus, we don't try to sell them on you like a benefits package. But Lord, I pray that we exemplify the truth of what you said and what you lived in such a way that it compels people so that we can share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. And I pray all these things in your name for your glory. Amen.